Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. No power frequency radio. No change without struggle. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power. WORT 89.9 FM Listener Sponsored Community Radio Madison, Wisconsin And hello, welcome to A Public Affair I'm Esti Dinor Before we get to our topic today I need to report to you that uh, Ahmed Abu Artema the poet who uh, started the great march on March of Return in Gaza in 2018 and who was a guest on this show on uh, January 31st 2020 um, He was severely injured and five members of his family were killed in um, an airstrike that shelled his home in Tel al-Sultan in Rafah, Gaza. Um, he is suffering second degree burns. He's now in a stable condition. His 12-year-old son, Abdullah, two of his brothers and mother-in-law were killed. His other son and Ahmed's sister in a critical condition. And um, Al Jazeera reports that um, it looks like there's about to be a worse escalation and likely communications will be entirely cut off, which is very, very worrying. We will get back to the situation next week, um, but I thought you might want to know that. Yeah. Well, today we are going to talk about the fact that Wisconsin prisons have been on lockdown for eight months and two mates, two inmates have died by suicide during that time. This is a very serious issue that isn't getting as much coverage as it should. And we will be talking about it today. We will have two guests. Later, we will be talking from uh, Jason Stein, who is the vice president and research director of the Wisconsin Policy Forum. But we are starting with Mario Koran. He is currently a New York Times local investigations fellow. He's in Milwaukee. Previously, Koran served as a West Coast correspondent for The Guardian U.S. and spent five years covering education for Voice of San Diego, where he was named the 2016 Reporter of the Year by the San Diego Society of Professional Journalists. His work has appeared in the New York Times, The Appeal, and the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, among others. He holds a BA in Spanish Literature and MA in Journalism from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And hello to you, Mario. Thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What, what's happening in um, the, the correctional so-called system um, and specifically in Wapon? Yeah, so um, there's, a, there's a lot happening with the Department of Corrections broadly. But, um, you know, if we start just by taking a look at Wapon Prison. So Wapon is, is a maximum security prison. Uh, it's in Dodge County. It houses about 1,000 people. So 1,000 men are incarcerated there incarcerated there it's a it's a men's prison and since march since the end of march it's been on lockdown and what that means is uh we we often think about you know when i think the average person might think about prison they might think of uh people just sitting behind uh, bars in their cell the entire day but the actuality of it the reality is that there's a lot to do uh on a typical prison day Um, you know, there's educational programming, there's, uh, you know, time to get out, there's socialized connection, connections with family. But, you know, for the past seven months, that's that all of that has been halted. And so um, people there have been uh, confined to their cells um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, with the exception of occasional showers. Um, right now, it sounds like uh, inmates there are getting or, or 
folks who are incarcerated are getting uh, one shower a week, which is still under the bare minimum of two showers a week as outlined by state law. So it's um, just really posed this this uh, myriad uh, uh, problems at the prison, um, including just t- uh, lack of timely access to medical care, um, um, folks who are threatening suicide or self-harm, um, often driven by the, the, the conditions, um, as, as they say, or, um, you know, sometimes just to get medical care because it's so tough to get medical care inside these prisons or inside upon at least um, that, you know, often they will make a threat in order to be seen by a nurse. So we can talk about lots of other problems in there, but that's just a snapshot of what we're seeing currently. Well, let, let's find out why. Was there some great uprising where some uh, prison guards um, detained by prisoners? What, what causes an eight-month uh, lockdown? Yeah, so the, from the Department of Correction standpoint, the statements that they've given, they haven't yet given just a specific example of what exactly happened, what incidents, what they look like. Um, we've heard reports. I heard a report from, uh, from the mayor of Wuhan that uh, uh, one night uh, prisoners got out of the cells and threatened uh, a guard and that they refused to go back to their cells. That sort of prompted the incident. Um, but the Department of Correction statement has simply been that there was assaultive behavior and uh, threats being made. And so they decided to lock down. Uh, now, at the very beginning, the Department of Corrections denied that this had anything to do with staffing. Um, in the months since, it's become clear that um, staffing may or may not have been the, the reason for the lockdown, but it has certainly contributed to the fact that they are still being locked down this many months later. Um, and so it, it, it could be attributed to that assaultive behavior. Um, it's at least partially attributed to just the fact that there are so few staff at uh, this prison and, and prisons in general in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because in uh, 1983, uh, Wapon prisoners were locked down for three days after actually seizing control of buildings and taking hostages and setting fires. Uh, so that was three days. Now we're talking about eight months. Um, s- sounds like it's more likely that it's because of the lack of stuff. Is that what do you think? It's, it's, uh, I think it's safe to say, and they've admitted since the Department of Corrections and officials have admitted that it is at least part, partly due to staffing. Uh, but yeah, I, you mentioned, I find that detail striking. In 1983, I mean... People locked inside, um, took control of at least part of the prison, um, took 15 hostages, set fires. I mean, compared to what we're seeing now, they locked out for only three days versus a seven to eight month uh, uh, lockdown. There's something doesn't seem to match up there. Yeah. So um, let's look at what what does that mean to uh, prisoners? You have... Um, You have kind of given a sentence of several of the things that um, are affecting prisoners because of that. Give us um, give us a more um, complete description of what what that means to be a prisoner in Wapon um, on the eighth month of a lockdown. Yeah, so the first thing that stands out to me um, from just receiving emails, countless emails and um, letters from people who are locked inside, it's just the sense of desperation, just this growing sense of desperation. I mean, uh, you can see the subject line in these emails there, please help me, I'm suffering, please help me. And that's just the tone of these emails that, that run throughout. And so they range from what an average person might can seem more, I, I don't want to say use the word petty, but you know, a little bit lighter of complaints about the food. But when you get into detail, so of course, uh, prison food, prison cuisine is probably not going to be ideal under any circumstance. But in this case, we're talking about bagged lunches. We're talking about very few hot meals. Um, you know, and these are lunches that come with um, bologna sandwiches and maybe some sweets, right? So they aren't nutritionally of value, first of all. But second of all, there's also a problem that has been confirmed with pests, rodents, birds that have made uh, homes in the cell hall and leave droppings everywhere. So just 
you know, if we're just talking about the food, if we're just talking about the basic conditions, these do not sound to be sanitary, healthy, safe conditions for people in the custody of Wisconsin Department of Corrections. Um, you know, we could also consider um, uh, timely medical care. And, um, you know, uh, you know, folks who have been locked up send, send me plenty of evidence, right? If they uh, need to get a tooth extracted or their extreme pain or they can't uh, see, they have blurry vision and need to see an optometrist, um, they submit a request to be seen by medical staff. But these requests are being sent back and saying, in no uncertain terms, we're not doing the eye doctor during the lockdown. And so these health problems are getting pushed off for months and months and months, sometimes years in other cases. Of course, that doesn't apply to this current lockdown. But this is a problem that is being exacerbated um, uh, by this current lack of staffing and whatever else plagues the prison that is forcing them to, to stay on lockdown for this long. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, rats and birds in the cells. Um, how how do they get in the cells, and how does that relate to the to the lockdown? Uh, well, I don't think that the I, to the so I don't know to the degree if the lockdown has, has brought the birds in, for example. Um, but when we have uh, this is a known this is a known thing at the prison. Um, I think when it's hot, when they have hot days, they need to open the windows and birds have just flown in and just sort of set up shop there. Um, This isn't the rodents and the mice and the infestations. um, They aren't unique to a pond. I know that uh, Green Bay prison is also currently under lockdown or it's under a similar type of lockdown. Um, Mice infestations there. But I will say that, um, um, you know, if you if you're having to eat your food, if you're having to meet your eat your meals in the cells, um, that will you would think increase the likelihood that mice and other rodents and and uh, other pests will come to the cells and and sort of get that food. So the the two situations can't can't be helping each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely sounds like sanitation would be a huge problem. And you said that they can shower only twice a week. Uh, it's under typical, uh, the bare minimum under typical Wisconsin law uh, is that they get two showers a week. Um, that has not been happening, at least been happening on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're only getting one shower a week, and sometimes if that. Um, we're also hearing very often, and it seems very credible and likely, that uh, these gentlemen are going through, uh, um, they have to wear the same clothes for, for a week straight or more. I mean, that maybe that, I, I don't know where that falls in the, in, the, in the sort of severity of things, but if we can all imagine wearing the same underwear, wearing the same clothes for a week straight, I don't think any of us would like it here on the outside, right? But that's what these, these men are forced to endure. Are they uh, one prisoner to a cell or two, do you know? Uh, in most cases at Wapan, Wapan is an, uh, in, an overcrowded prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these cells are being, most of them are being occupied by two people apiece. So how overcrowded is it? Um, the Department of Corrections, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head. Um, I, I believe it's, it's, oh, it's around 100 or 200 over the design capacity at least. Um, and so this is a prison. It's the state's oldest, right? It was built in the 1800s, and there's lots of problems with the facility itself um, that are there are separate concerns. Um, and when you're keeping people in their cells and, and really uh, uh, not allowing them to move about the prison, they're just forced to, to, uh, to face the conditions and the cleanliness or lack thereof uh, with, with, within their cells. Mm-hmm. So they're locked Almost twenty four seven, yeah. Yeah, that's the uh, that is the. Of course, they they are occasionally let out for showers, but it doesn't seem to be a consistent sort of shower rotation. They also uh, have been typically out let out uh, a couple times a week for recreation to get fresh air. That's a pretty um, important thing if you're locked inside. Those have been happening in, irregularly, and so you know when they do get out, they do get outside. Um, it may be once a week if that but you know there was a lawsuit that i mentioned in the story that was finally filed yesterday and the lawsuit contains a class action lawsuit that was filed on behalf of wapan inmates it contains a a lot of details about this and um, it alleges that 
inmates are going um, sometimes months on end without any fresh air um, and and not being able to get outside. And, um, you know, this is all within the sort of backdrop that lockdown means no family visitation. Um, you know, they have access to their families on the telephone. This can be expensive, but families cannot come and visit them currently as they haven't been for the past eight months. So that's, you're talking about a different level of impact. That's an impact of the families and the loved ones who are also suffering with the, with the people inside. Yeah, so, um, and I also um, saw in your article that uh, prisoners and their family members say that they're facing increasing discipline during the restrictions. What, what is that about? Yeah, so that that came out of a uh, of a follow up report that I wrote recently, just last week, and uh, the Department of Corrections said it, uh, very directly that uh, there was only two prisons on this sort of modified movement, as they like to call it. In other words, another word for lockdown. Um, but there are more. There are more prisons than just those two, than just Green Bay and Waupun. And in fact, Stanley Prison is a medium security prison uh, over in Chippewa County, and um, there they've been enduring modified movement. It's not quite as severe or as dramatic as uh, as the situation in Wapon or Green Bay. Um, but, you know, a, a number of, of folks who are incarcerated there at Stanley are talking about this rise uh, petty sort of disciplinary tickets that are sending them to the hole, um, sending them to segregation, which can be a punishment in itself, and can, you know, cost them certain opportunities. It could cost them potentially the opportunity to get out of prison um, sooner. So those are, you know, those, those, those petty infractions, uh, if they are petty, as the inmates report, uh, they can have very serious consequences. Yeah. So um, with all these prisoners, h- how many are there that we're aware of since it's not just Wapon, it's also Green Bay and, and um, Stuart, is it? Um and and there may be others. I don't know. I do you know? But how many prisoners are we talking about altogether that we know of? You know what? That's a very good question, and it's something that's not known currently. Uh, mm. We do not know the full scope of this problem, and I think that's what troubles me as a reporter. Um, we don't know how many prisons exactly are on some form of modified movement. When I wrote this last story about Stanley also being on the list of of prisons under modified movement. They had kept the language vague. The Department of Corrections had said, look, modified movement, this type of thing happens pretty often in small ways and in large ways. And we, uh, you know, this type of thing is very common. So we cannot say exactly how many are under that, that, current, uh, that, that current state. And to be fair, look, the lockdowns are a pretty, they are indeed a fairly common occurrence, right? So if... Um, there's a short staffing situation for a weekend, or maybe the prison decides they have to toss the cells, they have to look through the cells um, and, and check everyone over the weekend. It's not so uncommon to put a type of lockdown situation onto the prison for a weekend or an extended weekend or something short. Um, but what's happening here is, is something different. These are months on end. Um, when I've asked the question directly uh, uh, about you know, how many are under lockdown, how long is this eight-month lock? Excuse me, seven-month lockdown. Is this the longest in the state history? Um, they could not answer the question because they they say that they don't formally keep track of it, um, and so it begins to get quite difficult when the only sort of uh, source of information is uh, uh, is a public information department that has been not exactly transparent. Uh, with the situation as it is. So it begins hard to trust their word for it. Um, and that's not to take a shot at them. It's just, it's just because the information that they've given has been very contradictory at times. Mm-hmm. Well, so it's interesting that they don't have the information and apparently they don't um, keep data on that. Are there some rules by which they have to... Or that they have to follow? Is the state um, legislating something that has to do with lockdowns? Or or can it just be arbitrary because of whatever reason and last for however long? 
it's a very good question. Um, and it, it, it is a really astute question, kind of in the where the story is and where it's going. So um, and state law says that anytime uh, a prison is put on lockdown, um, the warden, who's the, the top official at that prison, has to give notice to the top uh, Department of Correction heads. Uh, we've asked for those notices going back some time, or I have asked for those notices. I filed a public records request for those. Those are not have not been, um, I filed that in June, I want to say, and I haven't gotten anything back. So there is a way to answer that question. That question has not yet been answered. But to the broader question, there really not is not a an oversight body uh, that is looking at how long lockdowns are lasting, the conditions under lockdown. And that is part of what concerns the ACLU when I spoke with them, uh, ACLU's National Prison Reporting Project is very concerned about, about this lack of oversight under lockdowns. Uh, according, to, uh, according to an attorney who I spoke with there, um, this is, you know, lockdowns are something that became quite common during COVID, right? A, lo a lot of prisons, prisons across the country were locked down. And so in their view, it, you know, they, the corrections officials kind of got a taste of, of what it's like to operate a prison under lockdown and that it can be quite easier, quite a bit easier. And so, you know, it is easier when you don't have people moving about the prison. Um, it, it can be quite easier to manage. So what, what ACLU feels is that this is, there's been a concerning, and I think she used the word frightening, rise in these lockdowns. And there really isn't an oversight body keeping check of it. And there certainly isn't in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. My guest is Valia Koran. He's currently a New York Times local investigations fellow. He's joining us for Milwaukee. And you are welcome to join the conversation, too, with your questions or comments, 608-256-2001, extension 9. We do not have a receptionist today, so you do have to... Uh, Press the nine if you would like to join us. You can also join us on social media at Wart Talk on X, I suppose, or a public affair on Facebook. So, Mario, why why lockdowns were so common during COVID? Well, I think that there was a couple of reasons that made uh, lockdowns more justifiable during COVID. Um, I think the main one is just the, to sort of slow the transmission of the virus. And you can understand that, right? If, yeah. if people are coming into less contact with each other, um, there's less chance of that transmission. All that said, it didn't necessarily help the fact that corrections officers were going into the community and then coming back. And, you know, it was difficult to really stop the spread. Uh, uh, you know, they were basically sitting, people incarcerated were basically sitting ducks uh, during the height of COVID. But what we've seen since then is that prisons have been very slow to open back up and get back on a typical schedule. And I think that could be attributed in part maybe to the fact that it was easier. Uh, maybe they liked it or it was a little bit easier to operate prisons under modified movement. But but also, you know, it became I think COVID made staffing all the more difficult. And I think a number of, of folks who could, at least the situation in Wisconsin, the folks who, who could retire were of that age did. And, and so you're left with even fewer people to, um, to manage prisons and, and, and oversee uh, the daily activities. And so you have the staffing, the staffing uh, crisis that was already a problem in Wisconsin kind of growing to a, a crisis point. Yeah, and I'll, I'll want to get back to that momentarily, but I, I, I'm thinking back to the notion that uh, people have been locked down almost 24-7 for almost eight months. So that's basically keeping inmates in solitary confinement or in double confinement. And I, I, I can't, I don't know what's worse, right? To uh, be all by yourself um, so much or to be with someone that you may not like or get along with in a small cell. Uh, what are the mental and emotional repercussions of of this situation? Uh, I'm, of course, it's going to vary by person, but it, you know, according to experts who I've talked to, including experts in solitary confinement, the conditions of being locked down 24-7 aren't altogether different um, or 
the impacts may be not altogether different. And it's long been established and known that solitary confinement can lead to long-term psychological damage. I mean, this is these are effects that can follow a person for a lifetime. And so if you're isolated in a cell, if you have you know fewer opportunities to engage with your family, with, to engage with loved ones, to pull you out of that sort of funk in that darkness, um, and you you know you're getting poor food, poor nutritional value with lack of exercise, that's a recipe for um, for the problems uh, that you may already experience for the for the mental health needs that you already have. It can all just exacerbate it and push it push push a person over the the edge. Um, so there was at least um, uh, there's at least been one suicide, unfortunately, um, during the time of lockdown. There was recently another death that is un under investigation. Um, but let me just tell you that it is not uncommon in these letters, and, and I can't stress this enough, for people to say I am so desperate that uh, I think about taking my own life every you know multiple times a day. Um, I'm so desperate that I've attempted it. And it is, uh, I think it would take a callous person to read letter after letter of this and not be affected and concerned uh, just for the humanitarian um, aspect that is, as you know, not, not always talked about and considered. Mm -hmm. And what do we know about the two who did die by suicide? Um, what preceded that? Um, what do we know? Well, we we know more of the first uh, the the first death. Um, his name was Dean Hoffman, and Dean um, Dean this is according to Dean's family, who I've uh, had the opportunity to speak with and be with. Um, that Dean was, you know, had long struggled with mental illness. Um, had had maybe an episode that was part of the crime that sent him to prison. Um, once he got to Wapan, he wasn't there long. I want to say a month or less than a month. Mm -hmm. At one point, he was sent to solitary confinement. And um, according to his attorney, was deprived of medication, at least uh, in, the, in the immediate day following, you know, leading to his death. And, um, and they had found him in his cell deceased. Um, the, the second death, uh, less is known because it's still under investigation, but the gentleman's name was Tyshawn Lemons. And um, he is currently also speaking with the attorney who represented Hoffman's family. And so they do have legal representation. They are taking this forward, both families, um, and alleging that the, the, the prison hadn't done enough to really protect their loved ones and, and fulfill their needs. Mm -hmm. So is that the same lawyer that has taken the class action suit or is that someone else? Indeed, indeed. His name is Lonnie Story. Uh, Mr. Story is a an attorney out of Florida, has taken a number of cases in the past in Wisconsin as well. So he uh, practices in both states. Um, but yes, his first case was the class action lawsuit that he has been working on. Um, he's also representing the families of the deceased. And really his his line, I think, has been ringing off the hook is what he's told me ever since the first story he had published. Um, he has certainly no shortage of people that uh, want his help in filing these these lawsuits. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I appreciate very much that um, there is a lawyer who has taken all of that. Uh, do you happen to know how a lawyer who does stuff like that gets paid? Um, like how how can he do it? Well, I, I, I can't speak to the ins and the outs of uh you know, the, the, the billing um, for attorneys. But I do know that uh, it is a serious factor. Uh, you know, if we're talking about, if we're talking about these kinds of lawsuits, um, you, for an attorney, they have to consider how much money will even be involved and whether they're going to be losing money on the case. I mean, if they win, uh, sometimes they may be breaking even. And I think the worst situation would be to lose money on these lawsuits. And so I think, the, the result of that is that a number of these cases that maybe don't rise to the level or maybe aren't as egregious as the others, um, those go unheard. And so cost is definitely, definitely a factor. Um, I also know that you know, a good number of these folks who are incarcerated, they try to represent themselves. They file uh, lawsuits pro se. Uh, some are successful, which uh, I think is a remarkable feat to be doing that from inside prison bars and to be able to file a an actual lawsuit from there. Um, but yes, I, legal recourse 
is there, but it is difficult to take advantage of, I guess is one way to put it. Yeah, yeah. So um, getting back to staffing, um, just how bad is um, staff shortages and why? So staff shortages are something that go back, uh, you know, more than a decade. Uh, I know I spoke with uh, former Department of Corrections Secretary Ed Wall, and Ed Wall talked about this is something that even during his term, he was trying to get some action on um, trying to improve the situation for staffing. Um, if you talk to correctional officers and really just kind of general observers in Wisconsin, many will talk about um, Act 10 which curbed, you know, the power of public unions and, and made, a, you know, a, it could have been a major factor in sort of um, pushing those of retirement age sort of out the door more quickly. And then you're left with a situation where younger uh, correctional officers are training younger correctional officers. But really the problems have become very acute in the most recent years. Um, in staffing now, we're talking about um, at some prisons, at Wapan, for example, we're talking about a vacancy rate of 53%, uh, wow. meaning, of course, that um, you know more than half the prison, excuse me, more than half the positions for correctional officers and sergeants are going unfilled, which is a concerning picture in itself. But I want to be clear that that does not give us a really great idea of what it looks like on any given shift for these correctional officers. I mean, we have testimony from correctional officers saying that, you know, they are sometimes in a situation where they're responsible for overseeing 100, 200, 300 inmates just by themselves, right? Which is not an ideal situation for a correctional officer, right? It's not a correctional, it's not a, it's an ideal situation for anybody, but it can, it can pose serious risks for those people as well. So this is really a multifaceted problem that has, um, you know, an impact for everybody involved. Yeah, so basically what we're looking at is more prisoners than the prisons can hold and um, fewer, I mean, 53%. That's that's um, incredible guards. So what does that mean about the whole system? That is a that is a million hour question. Um, I think that, you know, that is a that is a question that takes reporting and and you know, pressure from families, pressure from people on the outside to really drive at those, that, that larger question of, okay, we have this situation where we're looking at short staffing, but how did we get here? Why has it been so difficult to manage? And what can we realistically do to move forward? Um, you know, staffing is a single issue in itself, but there's a lot tied into that. So, you know, I, I think that it's something that's going to take me a bit more reporting to try to get to an answer of what is the larger sort of systemic problem that is behind the short staffing to begin with. Um, but thankfully, those questions are starting to be answered or excuse, excuse me, uh, reach toward. There is more press coverage uh, and officials, um, even though they, we haven't, haven't gotten all the answers yet, they at least are addressing this in the public sphere, in, a, in the public forum. So I think that there's progress in getting some answers to that. Mm -hmm. Well, so you mentioned uh, Governor Walker and his Act 10, um, one of a whole lot of um, legislations that um, have taken Wisconsin way back. But we now have Governor Evers, um, who is doing his best to correct a lot of these um, a lot of a lot of this bad stuff that was happening 2010 and on um, how how has he reacted to the situation and uh, what are we seeing that's becoming better if at all yeah so governor evers has been quite quite silent on this issue, as a matter of fact. Um, you know, he has deferred, his office has deferred essentially to the Department of Corrections. So when asked, you know, what is your take on this? What what do we do to move forward? Um, uh, his office has just kind of pointed me toward the Department of Corrections and said, we, we, uh, we trust in their expertise. They can handle it. Mm. Um, they can they can essentially handle it. But the question in the background really is there's at least one one path toward at least a temporary solution, which would be to call in the National Guard. That is a that is a tool that governors have it at their disposal. 
that has not been done. And really, there hasn't been a lot of answers as to why that couldn't that that hasn't been done yet. Um, now, all that said, like like I mentioned, that would be a temporary solution um, that would probably require some type of training between the state and National Guard soldiers who would be operating the prison. Um, and so it may not be a long term solution that they want to even dip their toe in. But we really have not gotten a lot of answers uh, to to answer your question from mm-hmm. uh, Governor Tony Evers. Yeah, and and I'm assuming that at least part of it probably has to do with the fact that um, it's not really well known um, that the situation is as is, and let alone eight months of lockdown and and what that means. Um, So I appreciate that you have uh, been doing your um, reporting, and um, I'm glad that we can... um, report to help you, um, you know, spread the word. But I guess it means that people really should um, get talking. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you. And yeah, this is, I mean, I've, I've been at least uh, encouraged to see so much attention, so much press. Uh, having to be in, in the conversation, I think, is, is a good thing for everybody in the state. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Mario Curran. Um, currently a New York Times local investigations fellow talking to us from uh, Milwaukee. Again, appreciate your reporting and um, the fact that, as you said, you're going to continue looking into it and reporting, yeah? Yes, yes, indeed. Okay, thank you very much for joining us. And we are going to go to our um, second guest, Jason Stein, who is the vice president and research director of the Wisconsin Policy Forum, where he focuses on researching state and local government out of the group's Madison office. Before joining the forum, you may remember his name because he actually was... uh, the Capitol reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. We just talked about uh, Governor Walker, and I remember Jason reporting about that. Um, And also for the Wisconsin State Journal, he's the author with Patrick Marley of More Than They Bargained For, Scott Walker, Unions and the Fight for Wisconsin. His work has been recognized by journalism groups such as the American Society of News Editors, the Society of American Business Editors and Writers, and the Association of Capital Reporters and Editors. Milwaukee Magazine also named him as one of the city's most influential media figures in 2015. And thank you, uh, Jason, for joining us. Um, Your forum recently published Prison Blues, Correction Still a Huge Cost Driver and Policy Challenge for Wisconsin. Give us um, the general gist of what this report is, what this report is about and uh, how often does it come and what did you find? Sure. Well, thank you, first off, for having me on the program. And absolutely, it's a very important issue for the state of Wisconsin. We incarcerate individuals at a higher rate than the national average or any of our surrounding states. And as a result, we spend more on corrections per capita or per state resident than the national average or or any of our surrounding states. And And so, you know, go ahead. Yeah, that, that has been the case for a long time, for many years, right? It's not a new thing. Right, right. That, that's correct. And, you know, in some ways there, there was, uh, during the pandemic, a dip in the incarcer- incarceration rate because we did see the overall state prison population dip, but it has, you know, since then, it has started to rise again. And, and in fact, in, you know, projections from the Department of Corrections is expected to be, you know, in the neighborhood of what it was pre-pandemic, you know, it, over the next uh, 18 months. So this is a, a very important from both the public safety as also or a cost to taxpayers standpoint, since state prisons are funded almost exclusively by the sales and income and other taxes you pay, you know, citizens pay at the state level. Mm-hmm. So one thing we'll, we are seeing uh, very clearly nowadays is how the Wisconsin legislature is cutting 
the funds that um, used to go to education generally and to higher education specifically. Um, do you know how much the correction so-called budget um, relate you know what what's the sure. difference between that and the education um, budget? Sure. sure. So you know if you're thinking about a higher education, the state tax funding that goes to the prison system works out to about two point seven billion over the current two year budget that we just started in July. <clears throat> so it's like you know one point three one point four billion a year. Um, that that's more than the tax funding that would go to the UW system. Obviously, much less than what would the state would put into the k twelve system. But we do spend more, if you look at the institutions that are, Uh, state prisons, more state tax dollars goes to them than to UW campuses in the state. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at K-12 and higher education, we're talking about, um, I think, many, many more bodies than the ones that are in the prison system, even in the Wisconsin prison system, which uh, has so many bodies, but yet... Um, we are paying, I as a taxpayer, I'm paying so much more for the prison system, yeah? Yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, there would be within the prison system right now in Wisconsin, the adult prison system, you know, 21 to 22,000 inmates. Um, there would be, you know, full-time equivalent students within the University of Wisconsin system. You know, you're thinking about roughly 160,000. Um, but, but obviously, you know, the difference is... Um, when you're running a 24-7 institution like a prison, um, there's, you know, inmates have got to be fed. Um, you know, they've got to have uh, opportunities to move around and, and exercise and receive medical care. Although, as, as we've learned, those, those opportunities have been, have been limited in recent months. So it's just, you know, uh, locking someone up, um, you know, is something that, that happens. And, you know, there are a number of uh, individuals convicted of violent crimes within the state prison system, but it's very expensive to do. There's no way around that. So, um, of course, if someone commits a serious crime, um, I think most people would agree they should uh, be incarcerated. But again, we have a much larger prison population than neighboring states and actually most yes. states in the country. What is it about Wisconsin? Why why do we have so many more inmates? Well, you know, part of it is uh, revocations. So, you know, in Wisconsin, what has been, you know, over the past 20 years, the big driver, the biggest single driver of new entries into prison systems is inmates not who have been you know convicted of a crime for the first time but they've they've been convicted served time and then have been released on what's referred to as extended supervision and you know they may be then returned to prison for a new crime but also for other things like uh they maybe have a substance abuse problem uh, they have, you know, some other issue that they're not complying with the terms of their release. And so one of the things that the current administration has tried is to, you know, change the way they approach revocations and, this, you know, the level at which they're going to return somebody on extended supervision back to a state correctional facility. And that has had an effect in the sense that the the number of revocations is down and that you know contributor to you know the prison population has been reduced now at the same time you know this is a relatively new practice and we need to see you know what is the impact on public safety i think we also need to see um if we're going to be less uh, aggressive about revoking individuals for substance abuse issues, are we providing them with enough uh, substance abuse treatment and resources so that they can deal with that issue while they're still in the community? And so I think there's, you know, to some degree, it's an open question. 
how this is going to work and whether it needs to be adapted or changed. But, it, you know, the state is experimenting in a significant way with something that could change the curve here over, you know, over the next 10 years. Yeah. So in a sense, again, looking at how large the budget is for, for the prison system, um, might that mean that there's less money for uh, substance abuse programs, for programs for mental health? Because as I understand, a lot of the people who are incarcerated really um, are dealing with serious mental health issues that should have been taken care of before they landed them in prison. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. How about that? Well, there's no doubt that a significant portion of the prison population is is dealing, you know, has a mental health diagnosis. You know, I think it's in the realm of two in, in five inmates, according to the, the department's mm-hmm. figures. And, you know, so there's sort of two questions here is what uh, treatment can we get, you know, behavioral health, uh, treatment we can get for inmates while they're still uh, in an institution, and then what resources can we make available while they're in the community to try to uh, ensure that they, you know, become productive and, you know, law-abiding, you know, members of the community, their communities going forward. And as you say, you know, uh, there's certainly a significant cost to that on the front end, but they're, you know, of not doing that, there can be a very significant cost on the back end as well. And so the good news is that the state has right now a very significant surplus. Uh, It's being some of the changes that were made in the state budget to reduce income taxes and increase spending in some areas like education, that spent down some of the surplus, but we still have, you know, billions of dollars. And there is certainly room to make some targeted uh, investments in additional um, tools if if policymakers see, you know, the possibility for making further gains. Here. Mm-hmm. And one thing we haven't talked about yet, but it's a very well-known secret that. Um, there are very great disparities across race, and in that, yes. again, Wisconsin is, and Dane County for that matter, are um, either number one or close to number one, have been through the years for um, the level of incarceration, of especially black, but generally people of color. Talk about that. What, what have you found in, in this report? Yep, it's a great point. So, you know, our our black imprisonment rate in Wisconsin, it it has come down somewhat since the pandemic, but it it remains the highest in the country over the last several years. And our uh, disparity between the black and white imprisonment rates in Wisconsin is, I think, third highest in the country. So also nearly nearly, uh, top in the nation. So, you know, this is another... A very significant policy issue, um, both in terms of the impact on on the community as well as our you know reputation as a state as we try and you know attract um, you know people to come and live here. It's something where again these are not easy issues to deal with. We've gotten into this position over a series of decades, but uh, there's a significant cost to not addressing them going forward. Yeah, and I want to get back to the issue of um, staffing and uh, the really quite stunning shortages. Um, One thing is I have a question here from a caller who I think meant it for Mario, but I got it just as Mario was leaving. Um, So Eric was asking, do you think one reason for the vacancy rates in staff is because of the moral injury to the guards from the work that they do, especially in the high security prisons? I don't know that this is something that your report looked at, but what do you think? Well, I mean, look, there's no doubt that going to work every day 
in a in a you know prison, particularly a medium or high security prison, it's a very difficult job, and it has gotten more difficult in recent years. And why is that? Because you know if you look across the workforce, uh, not just in state government or in the prison system, but in the private sector as well, turnover rates in 2022 just skyrocketed, and we saw that across across employers uh, and across state government, but for an agency like the Department of Corrections that runs 24-7 facilities that cannot shut down, that is extremely difficult to manage. And so, you know, in 2022, at least, the department had something like 2,400 vacancies Hmm. within the agency. And so you think about the challenges of trying to hire and uh, train thousands of people because you can't simply take someone off the street and put them in an institution like Waupon. And so what one of the challenges is what happens Well, people have to work forced overtime to be able to cover the, the minimum number of shifts to run a prison, even if it's, you know, the prisoners are not allowed their usual movement. And so the toll that that takes on the workers is real because they, you know, they, without a lot of notice, have to give up what they thought might be a day off and, you know, work many days straight, work many hours straight. And so then that can feed into the turnover problem because you have people that they get to a certain point and they say, okay, I'm done and I'm leaving my position as well. And then you know, that only adds to the overtime that the remaining workers have to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have um, like a minute and a half, and I'm sorry, it's such a short time, but what does your report recommend? Well, first off, we, you know, we don't directly advocate for solutions, but I think, you know, an important change that's being made is just here in these very days, the state is increasing the pay for corrections workers from $20 an hour to $33 an hour, uh, which is, you know, an, an enormous increase and one that I think will, over time, start to address some of the uh, turnover issues within the correction system. And, you know, for, for listeners, I mean, the reality is as well that if the state has got to pay a lot of overtime, you know, that's already you know, time and a half works out to $30 an hour. So in some ways, you know, you're, you're paying it, you know, on the front end or the back end. As far as the correction system itself, I think one of the major things that the state could do is really monitor and be open and transparent about some of these changes that are happening and, you know, be prepared to make the investments that are needed to make these policy choices work, you know, and, bend the curve of how many people we have in the system over time, but also ensure that public safety outcomes aren't being compromised in the process. Yeah. Jason, real quick, where can people read your report? Yeah, great question. Thank you for asking that. It's at wifpolicyforum.org. So wifpolicyforum.org, and it's there for free for anyone who wants to look. And uh, just so you know, folks who are listening, you can read uh, Mario's uh, articles at Wisconsin Watch. Thank you very much, Jason, for joining us today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Yeah, and thanks for Jade and Summer and Evan. I'm Esti Dinor. We'll be talking again next week. Bye-bye. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. 